Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 4. And uh, we'll be looking at the first 12 verses this morning if you want to keep your Bibles open for this. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here. We're glad you're with us. As Drake has already explained, uh, we're going to continue in our series called Real Life Wisdom, looking at what James taught the very early church. This is one of the first letters written uh, in the New Testament, one of the first letters we have our hands on, that was written by a follower of Jesus to the church. And so far we've talked about what is truth and what is wisdom or faith rather, what is self-control, and today I want to talk to you about humility and why it's a struggle in our world today. James has been writing, last week he talked about the words we use and the significance those words have and the impact those words have on our daily life, how they represent our hearts and how they represent what's going on inside every one of us in the way we interact. So today, talking about humility, what James does is he branches right into why is life hard? Why is this difficult for us? What are some of the challenges we have? And so let's just begin uh, with the source of our problems. This is what James does in the fourth chapter. He talks about what's tripping us up and causing us not to live out this wisdom that we see God has for us. The first, very first thing that you need to know, and this is going to be one of those, hey, welcome to church, now I'm going to bust your chops. Here it is. Selfishness. One of the reasons that our lives don't go by faith is because we are selfish. We're naturally selfish, and then we continue in it. We breed it, we live with it, we allow it to become a part of who we are. In James verses one, or chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, we're going to read this beginning of part 2 as well, uh, verse 2 rather. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want, you quarrel and fight. That sounds like me, how about you? I mean, honestly, I can relate to this. There's a true story I read about a preacher in Vermont. Some of you were, uh, like myself, were raised in smaller churches where back when I was a little kid, every now and then the preacher, I think once a month, the preacher would bring all the kids up on stage, have us sit on the steps and give us an object lesson. Basically, it was a children's sermon that the adults could understand. And uh, so we'd all sit there. Well, this preacher in Vermont had this moment where he had an idea. So what he did is he asked all the blonde-haired kids in the church to come up and stand on his right. And when they came up, he opened up a big bag of M&Ms and he gave them each a little bit, poured some into their hands. And they were all happy. He told them how wonderful they were, how valued they were, and so forth. Then he called up all the non-blonde kids on stage to the left. And he, while they were coming up, he zipped up the bag of M&Ms and put it in the pulpit. He didn't mention about how special they were or fancy they were. He just had them stand there. And then he started teaching the lesson. And he stopped and he said, did you all notice anything unfair happening? And he thought, this is the moment that his lesson is going to resound through the church. When a little girl to his right, a little blonde-haired girl, raised her hand. And he said, what did you notice that's unfair? And she said, my sister, who was also blonde and standing next to her, got eight M&Ms. I only got six. <laughs> so we get it, don't we? James says that there is this battle of the world and the flesh. You hear Paul talk about it, too, when he talks about the things of the flesh versus the things of the spirit, the things of the world versus things of the kingdom. So I want you to understand, when that word flesh and world is used in your New Testament, it has a a strong distinction of what it's speaking to. 
The flesh is about human nature that's going contrary to God's way. And the world is society that's going contrary to God's way. So the flesh is an individual in our nature, and the world is all of us together in our culture. And that's why it's used, this flesh and world. And James points out that our desires originate in our sin nature, that we are all selfish by nature. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He actually uses the plural form. Notice that. It's not just a fight or quarrel. It's the constant division. The way people irritate us, the way we irritate them, the way that we uh, uh, strive to, to have disunity, not by choice, but our behavior is constantly dividing and separating and slandering and picking and demeaning. James says, why does this happen? Then he asks that great question, which is a rhetorical question. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And we all know the answer is, yeah, they do. The desires within us, the flesh versus the spirit. The desire to say, who is in charge of me? So I want to declare this right now because I, I may be the only person in the room, but I think some of you will be able to understand this. I can say with all sincerity, my greatest problem in following God is me. It's not you or the church or society or culture. It's me. I'm selfish. I, I want what I want, and I'll do whatever it takes to get what I want. And sometimes I think I so deserve what I want that I can bend the rules to get what I want. Am I the only one? Oh, good. Well, I'm glad I'm in the right church then. All right. So Paul shows us that there is a downward spiral to worldliness. It's where our selfishness finds its companionship with others. And we compete against one another, but we all feel like, well, if they're doing that, it's okay for me to do it. Even churches are selfish, wanting to be all about them instead of being about a kingdom and and helping all people. Paul says, you want something, but you don't get it. Talks about passionate, unfulfilled desires and lusts. There's something we want, and we feel like because I want it, I should have it. But self-seeking will always be frustrated if God is God. Self-seeking will always be frustrated if God is God. Because he did not create us to have everything we think we want. He created us to be about others more than about ourselves. He says, then you kill And you may pause there and say, I've never killed. Well, maybe you've never killed someone physically, but have you ever killed their reputation? Have you ever assassinated their character? Have you ever buried their accomplishments because it became a threat to who you want to be seen as or how you want to be perceived? Then he says you covet because you can't have what you want. You become jealous and envious of others because they have something that you don't have. Then he says, and then you quarrel and fight. You pick and you bicker and you argue and you do whatever term you want to do because you can't have what you want. You won't let others have what they need. And James doesn't paint a very pretty picture. Oh, and by the way, if you didn't remember or you weren't here with us last week, let me remind you, James is writing this to Christians. He's not writing it to the unsaved. When he uses the word brother, he's speaking to those that are followers of Christ. So he's addressed that even within the body of of Christ, selfishness has a place, unfortunately. And we honor that place instead of ignoring it or walking away from it or bettering it. Continuing in verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask God, which is funny. I want you to pause there. You can read this real quick and feel like, man, he just slammed us. And now he turns around and turns it into prayer. But notice what he's doing. The reason there's division in our lives, the reason we struggle with one another, 
is because we're not asking the one who can give us what we need to give it to us. We're trying to make it for ourselves. We're trying to create it. So we argue and we fight and we kill and we slander and we covet. and We do all these things that have no actual benefit. And the reason we do them is because he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So we don't ask. He said, you don't have because you don't ask God. So we see someone who's cheating the rules or taking shortcuts or not living for God at all, and they have nicer things than us, and they get praise and accomplishments, and they have natural abilities, and we become envious and slanderous. And <clears throat> Now, when I was a kid in church, and I'm just going to confess something to you to help you understand my psychosis. When I was a kid in church, when the preacher would say, this week when I was reading in Ezekiel, I was like, ooh, aren't you somebody? <laughs> yeah. And then, so today I'm going to tell you, today, or this week when I was reading in Habakkuk, are you impressed? Don't, don't be. The reason I'm in Habakkuk is because my little chronological reading list says, be in Habakkuk today, okay? So I was reading in Habakkuk, and I was reading it, and I was going, what? And then I'd get a commentary, and I'd read and go, oh. Then I'd get another commentary, and I'd read and go, oh, now I get it. Here's what I learned in Habakkuk 2 this week. God makes the success of those who disrespect him meaningless. So if you've ever sat here and wondered, how could people who are ignoring and disrespecting God accomplish so much? How how can they have so many benefits of the world that I would love to have? And we say, it just doesn't seem fair. It seems like those that are defying God are winning and those that are following God are losing. Have you ever had that feeling? Then I read Habakkuk and the prophet says, no, God is letting them win in the eyes of the world, but their wins mean nothing to them. It's meaningless. They have... Money and fame and accomplishment and trophies, but at the end of the day, they're not loved and valued and cherished. Now, that doesn't, I'm not sitting in my desk going, <laughs> good. I'm actually reading that going, how many times have I asked God, give me to what the world wants to give me? And God says, I don't want you to have that. It wouldn't mean anything to you if you had it anyway. God can take those that disrespect him and their accomplishments become meaningless. He says, we don't ask because you don't ask God. Instead of letting the world be the one who makes you feel valued and approved of and significant, he says, ask God to do that. He would love to. The world doesn't want to do that for you. You and I are a commodity to our culture. We are a means to an end. Yet in God's economy, we are the end. This is why he did everything he did with Jesus, is so that he could have the ones he loved, every single one made in his image. And he says, and if we do ask, we ask with a selfish heart. And I know I don't need to explain that. If you're anything like me, and some of you confess that this morning, we know what it is to be selfish. And at the end of a win, we actually know we truly lost. What we got is something that now is tainted because the means by which we got it wasn't a natural way. It wasn't the right way. there's There's no hope in it. So the first thing that we struggle in our faith, in this walk of faith, is our selfishness. And then the second is lack of loyalty. So if he didn't get your attention with selfishness, this one will bust you in the mouth to start with because look at what he says in verse 4. Look how he addresses us. You adulterous people, (laughs) does he have your attention? This isn't, good morning, great to see you. This is like scum. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 
Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Gary Holloway says in his commentary on James, friendship was a much richer term in the ancient world than it is today. It implied unity in thought and purpose, not just acquaintance, not just someone who you like when you're with them, but somebody you journey with and prosper with and work with and make better as they make you better, iron sharpening iron. In fact, James in James 2.23 says that Abraham was called a friend of God, someone on a parallel path, someone journeying together in the direction. Remember that the world means, remember the flesh and the world distinction I brought up earlier? The flesh means the nature of a person going in opposition of God, and the world means a culture going against the way of God. And he says that if you're friends with the world, if you're paralleling with the world, if you want to follow the direction the world's going, you are not a friend of God. You're an enemy of God. Because you're trusting this entity, you're you're trusting this thought process and this worldview called culture that it's going to deliver to you joy and happiness in a future instead of following the only one who can do that for you, God. But, But we look at it and go, yeah, but how do I live in the world and not be of the world? That seems like such a thin, narrow line. How do I know I'm not crossing over that? Well, there's some warnings in relation to that. In James 4, 4, we're told that friendship with the world is being an enemy of God. In James 1.27, we're told not to be stained by the world. Interesting terminology. 1 John 2 tells us we're not to be in love with the world because we're enemies of God. And Romans 12 says we're not to conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But God does expect pure loyalty. And so let me say this as, as just as clearly as possible to make the greater point. No, God does not understand when we try to be more like the world than like his kingdom. He doesn't understand. And we may say to one another, well, I'm trying to be as much like the world as possible so I can win some of those people out. Then go win some of the people out. But don't give that as an excuse if you're trying to live as close to the world and know everything the world's doing and be engaged in all the world and be stained by the world and then come back to God and say, well, I just, you know, I wanted both. So let me ask you a question this morning. It's a holiday week and I can get away with this. Does God have a right to ask you to be 100% loyal? Does he have a right to tell you that there are some things in the culture that are so contradicting to what he's asked us to become that his children should say no to that? And if you sit here today wondering, I don't know, then ask yourself the same question. As a parent of a child, do you have the right to tell your children, our family's not going to do that? Oh, absolutely. Then our Father has the right to ask us for the same thing. But before we stop and go, yeah, but God doesn't want us to have any fun. Seriously? The God who made puppies and nature and created our bodies to jump and dance and sing and clap and laugh, that God doesn't want you to have fun? He's given you everything you've ever known that's fun. The only lasting thing you'll ever have joy about your entire life is your relationship with Him. The world will fail you at every level. So James says, anyone who chooses to, to have friendship with the world, to appeal to the world, and develop a parallel life with this culture cannot be a friend of God's. Which I know, for many of us, brings up the question, I don't know how to walk that line. I'll show you some of the things that James tells us in a moment. Once again, I just want you to see verse 5 one more time. Do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? So how do you know 
Which side of that equation are you on? Being in the world but not being of the world. Here's the beautiful part that James offers us. The Holy Spirit will bring conviction to you if you're open to it. If you will ask the Spirit of God to tell you, are my feet in the world or in the kingdom? I believe God will answer that question for you. Your preacher doesn't have to. Your scriptures will and the Spirit will. Will lead you to get into the balance, as Paul said, of living in this world as light, but not being of the world's darkness. So what are some of these exercises to work out this humility? Now you may say, I thought you were going to talk about humility. You haven't talked about it yet. In a way I have, haven't I? Humility means my selfishness gets exchanged for selflessness. And that my loyalty becomes declared completely to God. I don't rely on my own power. I don't rely on what I can make of myself. I trust that completely to the Lord. So here's some things that James gives us right out of the text that you and I can lean toward. Number one, submit to living by God's grace only. Submit to living by God's grace only. Let's talk about what this means here. In verse six, but he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says, God opposed the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, come near to God and he will come near to you. Submit yourselves then to God. So here's what I want you to see in this text. I'm going to be very pointed in this opening point because I think it's something in culture today, especially in our lifetime, that is evaporating from Christians' mindset. And I think it's a a scary thing and we need to reinstate it. Who is responsible for your spiritual walk? When I answer that question, the answer is me. I am. You're not responsible for my spiritual walk. I can't abdicate any of my responsibilities to my wife. I can't give it to my grandmother who led me to the Lord. I can't put it on my kids. I can't put my kids' responsibility on the youth minister. And I don't say this as a preacher who feels burdened by all this expectation. I think what's happened is we have abdicated to the church. The church will be spiritual for me. And if I give a few dollars here and I tend every now and then, but the church does this wonderful thing outside of Albuquerque, then that's my commitment. Be careful. You are told to submit yourself. Every one of us is born by God with a ministry, with a challenge, and with a gift. And each one of us will be accountable to God for what we do with our lives. So part of humility is accepting responsibility for your own spiritual walk, and then in the community of the church, that's blessed. Left to the church to do it for you, you'll become stale and useless. Because your gift never gets offered. Those muscles of faith never get exercised. James quotes Proverbs 3.34. The humble are those who give allegiance to God. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That opposes the proud goes back to Habakkuk chapter 2. That God may let them think they're winning, but ultimately at the end there's no satisfaction. It's what Solomon would write about in Ecclesiastes. When he says all of this is what? Meaningless. All of the relationships, all of the fame, all of the power, all of the conquering, it meant nothing. He said, life is just a vapor. You're here and you're gone. It's desperate. And then he says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Some of you have a different translations. It may say, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If you have the King Jim Bible from the 16th century, it says, draw nigh. Such good poetic language. But I want you to notice those are verbs, draw and come. Who's performing the verbs? You and I are. 
If your spiritual walk is asking God to show up every time you want him to show up, but stay away when I don't need you. You're not drawing near to God. You're actually requesting the powerful, almighty God to enter into your world at your convenience. Be careful. I believe Jesus told us the truth when he said God is with us always. And I hope this isn't too personal. I know I've received an email or two telling me I'm really hard on my kids. I love my boys. I do. That's not an excuse. But sometimes the stories are funny and I share them. Our little guy will sit up at the top of the steps and we'll hear this late at night. Heather will be, you know, reading something on her iPad and a ball game will be on. I may be reading a book or working on something and we'll hear this voice from upstairs, Mom! And Heather's like, What? Come here! Drives me nuts. Now the good news is he's never said, Dad! Come here! Because he knows it'd be like, Nah. But Heather will... Okay, I'll be up in a second. And he sits up there just waiting for mama to come. He's got a good life, that kid. I'm going to tell you, if that's an example of your spiritual life, you better quit. Because if you notice in the Old Testament, whenever God arrived someplace, people came to him. They didn't expect him to come to them. Are you seeing the point here? Part of humbling yourself is that when the assembly of God's people gather together to worship, if you don't have time for worship and you don't have time for community, then you don't have time for God. Because if you won't draw near to God, there's an emphasis on us choosing. I know you're busy, but you chose that. I know life's complicated, but we made it that way. I know that this takes effort. Uh Uh-huh. But what good in life do you have that you didn't make effort to bring about and to be a part of. Nothing. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing comes easy. He says, draw near. Open yourself to God's grace and draw near to him. Because when you taste grace, you'll want more, not less. And if you think I just told you that coming to church every Sunday is important, of course I just told you that. But if that's all you do, What about community? What about relationships? What about Bible study? What about every day of your life making a choice to draw near to God, to develop yourself with God, and to make sure that you go into the holy spaces of life so that when you go into the darkness, the reflection of having been with God, like on Moses and Jesus in the transfiguration, shines to the world, and they realize something about you is different. Yeah, it's Jesus. Making time for worship and community is a sign of humility. Secondly, resist the devil. Well, this is pretty straightforward, isn't it? James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But what's interesting is the word resist means continually. Each and every day, we're going to choose whether or not we're going to resist the devil or we're going to bow to him. That we're going to accept temptation and the satisfaction that comes momentarily from that or that we're going to resist that temptation. Reminds me of Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Three times he was tempted. All three times he resisted. And it says that Satan fled from him. He left him awaiting another opportunity to appear. And we know when that opportunity would come, it'd be in the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you want to live humbly, then you have to resist the devil and trust that the God we pray to, the God that we worship, the God that we gather, the God that we serve is able to bring us victory. But victory is built on the choice of resisting the world and the flesh. Thirdly, choose your loyalty. James 4, 8, 
Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James was having a bad hair day, wasn't he? He's a little ornery today. But wash your hands and purify your hearts. This would have reminded them of the temple worship. When they drew near to God in the temple, they would come and they would wash their hands ceremonially, but they would not walk into God in whatever manner they were in. And I don't want to preach that sermon today because it could become highly legalistic. But if you're fitting God in between all of your other plans, repent. God should be the reason your plans exist. Not just one of the methods by which, it's just another thing I do in my daily routine. He says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded harkens back to chapter one where he talked to us about being double-minded, easily tossed by every whim, by every wind, by every wave. So the challenge here is to come clean before the Lord. Choose your loyalty. Wash your hands of your sin. Stand before God. Purify your hearts. What I love about God is when when God could simply say, really, again, with the same sin, again, with the same attitude, again, with the same selfishness, instead of being like us, God loves us so much that he's like, more grace. But he didn't simply say, come as you are and stay this way. When they came into worship, they realized their hands, their feet, their head, their heart were filthy. So they cleansed themselves before God and he received them. That's grace. Psalm 24, 3, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Loyalty. The choice to clean your hands and your heart. Fourthly, experience humility and peace. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. He's talking about filthy hands and hearts, and he says, grieve for that, mourn for that, wail for that. This life is hard. This life has taken its toll on us. We've not been what we wanted to be. But when we remove our selfishness and remove our disloyalty to God, it'll change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Carry the weight of who you are. Carry the weight of how we've not done what God's asked us to do. That's okay. It says, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. When we have returned with a heart that is graced by an unending love, it'll change everything about us. It'll even change the path we're on. Repentance is the first step of knowing who we are in the eyes of God and then following him more completely. And then he doesn't just stop there. So you're right with God. So that you've humbled yourself before God because you need him. But then he concludes with offer humility to one another. It's found in verses 11 and 12. And remember the first word here as he's talking to believers. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but setting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, God the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? He says, it's not only humbling ourselves before God for who we are, But it's also offering humility and gentleness to those we encounter. He says, why are there always fights and struggles and and, uh, quarrels amongst all of you? It's because we're all selfish. Because we're all loyal to ourselves only, so disloyal to God then by pure action. But he says, we're to offer ourselves to one another. Not to climb over other people to get what we want. Not to look at others as competitive. But instead to look at each other as equal or even greater 
James 2.8 says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. You're choosing rather to fight and quarrel, to humble myself and to not worry about being right, but instead being righteous. Then in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, God the one who is able to save and destroy. The reality of who God is and his judgment is crystal clear. God will not make a mistake. There will, not, there will never be a mistrial or retrial with God. He'll be accurate. So we struggle, don't we, with selfishness and disloyalty. Let me tell you the story of a king. Everywhere he went, what he got, or what he wanted, he got. He had servants, unnumbered servants. He sat on a throne of power and majesty. When he said he wanted something, it happened. His words contained power. And his father came to him and said, I would like you to leave your place of status, of primacy. I would like you to leave this place where everyone serves your every whim. And I'd like you to go down to a group of people that have ignored me as your father. They've rejected me. They've taunted me. They've disobeyed me. And now they speak as if I'm dead. And that son said, of course I will. And in Philippians, he left the best parts of heaven to come to the worst parts of earth. And he was selfless, not selfish. And he was loyal and not disloyal. And his loyalty even cost him his life. And they put that young king on a cross. And he went through all of this brutalizing behavior and treatment. So he could look at you and I and say, in your imperfection and in your selfishness and in your disloyalty, I will take all of that from you. I will give you a new heart. I will bring a spirit upon you you've never had before. I will bring you a power and you will reign with me for eternity. But you have to give me all of your sin. You have to give me all of these things. Give me your selfishness and become selfless. Give me your loyalty and I will absolve you from disloyalty. And that man on the cross died so that he could give us those things. I don't know if you remember this from week one, but James is the half-brother of Jesus. So what James offers us works. And he knows it worked because he saw his brother being loyal to God every step of the way and choosing to reject the things of the world that were false promises. And he saw him being selfless to the point that he gave up heaven to come to earth to serve every one of us. That's the Jesus we gather today to worship. That's the God who asked him to come because of his love for you. So when we talk today about what it means to be humble, let us all humble ourselves before our king that he might one day lift us up and we might honor him with our lives because it's not about you and me. It's only and always about him. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.